Amen. Well, I'm going to start with uh, the easiest question you've probably had in a long day, so try not to stumble on this, uh, this question. I know it's kind of, kind of complex, but uh, can you take the U.S. government at its word? <laughs> can, you tr can you trust the U.S. government? I'm, we're going to be talking today about a, a covenant-keeping God and how He's trustworthy, and we can count on every word that He says, and so I was trying to think of something that would be a, a stark contrast, and so... Uh, I started thinking about uh, the U.S. government. Obviously, that's where I live. That's where we live. And, you know, there's a long history, for those who take the time to actually look at it, of uh, what's called false flag narratives from our U.S. government. A false flag uh, goes back centuries as a concept, but it's still taught today to this very day in the American War College, false flag and a stand-down order, are techniques of warfare where uh, in order to gain support for a particular action, you stage some kind of attack on yourselves. You put on the enemy's uh, you know, uniforms, or in the case of the origin of the word, you raise the, your, you know, raise the enemy flag on one of your own ships and shoot at yourself and then blame it on the enemy, and, and everyone says, oh, we got to go get those scoundrels, you know, that's, that's a false flag. Uh, but just to kind of give you a survey, I think it's self-evident uh, these days especially, but we could go all the way back to the early, uh, late 19th century and the Spanish-American War and that famous Remember the Maine uh, battle cry that William Randolph Hearst and the other newspapers uh, kind of helped uh, push America into that war. That was a complete false flag. In fact, Hearst sent his photographer over to Havana, Cuba, to report on the supposedly sinking of the USS Maine, and the, the uh, reporter cabled back, or the photographer cabled back and said, all is well here, really nothing, no big deal, and he said, just send me some pictures, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war, and he drummed up support for the war. The sinking of the Lusitania in World War I was a clear false flag perpetrated by the British. Winston Churchill and the British Army wanted to draw America into World War I, and so they conspired with Woodrow Wilson, who knew that if the Lusitania went into that particular region, uh, it would be heading into enemy waters and there would be ships there ready to fire upon it. And they, in fact, not only let it go in there, but told it to slow down. Go real, real slow when you get to that part so that you can be attacked. Of course, they didn't tell them why they wanted him to go slow. That was a false flag. World War II, we now know without question, completely admitted, dis, uh, declassified documents that Pearl Harbor was a let it happen on purpose event. Roosevelt absolutely knew that it was happening and needed, again, to get the American public into the war. He had campaigned on not, on staying out of the war, and yet uh, he knew he was going to have to have a big change of public opinion if he switched his view on that. And so even the History Channel, a secular Luciferian-controlled uh, organization, has shown documentaries in the last four or five years uh, based on declassified documents that show that the uh, Pearl Harbor was a, a LIHOP event, L-I-H-O-P, a let it happen on purpose, a false flag as planned. And then, of course, who can forget the Vietnam War? Based on the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where North Vietnamese gunboats allegedly fired on the U.S. troops, and for 50 years, that was the story until you got to the 50-year anniversary and the, the statute of limitations on the declassification ran out. And through a FOIA request, people were able to see the documents. And indeed, that whole event was made up. Johnson needed a reason to get America into the war. And so he used the Gulf of Tonkin false flag, completely false, led to the death of 58,000 soldiers. More in uh, more recent times, the first Gulf War, they remember, anybody remember the news coverage and the congressional hearings about the so-called incubator babies? <laughs> a 
Well, it came out later that the gal that testified under oath before Congress, allegedly being an Iraqi who was eyewitness to the Iraqi soldiers pulling babies out of incubators, was actually the daughter of a Hollywood producer, never been to Iraq in her life, and was paid to testify under oath before Congress of what she had seen. The Iraqi war, uh, of course, even former, the late former Secretary of State Colin Powell later admitted how angry he was when he found out that the weapons of mass destruction was a complete false flag. There never were any. Uh, certainly not by the time America went in there, and uh, yet he bought the, the narrative and testified before the UN based on what he was told was true, only to later find out from uh, Prime Minister Blair and other U.S. leaders that that was all fake. We could go on and on the whole UFO, uh, 75 years of obfuscation and lies and cover-ups, and then finally now they come out and say, yeah, we've been studying them since the, early, the late 1940s. So clearly, uh, we've got trust issues, <laughs> or you should. Uh, I mean, I guess if you stick your head in the sand and uh, believe the best, then you're a sitting duck for what's coming next. But those who are eyes wide open understand uh, that it's tough to trust people, and it's tough to trust the U.S. government. When you get to Romans chapters 9 through 11 and the olive tree illustration, what we see is that unlike the U.S. government, God can, in fact, be trusted. We can take him... Uh, at his word. Uh, as the prophet Jeremiah said to Israel during one of the low points of their life, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom, during their exile, though the Lord's, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Before we get into the text, I'm going to give you a fast-paced, high-level overview of three chapters. I promise we won't read every verse of every chapter, but it's so critical uh, to understanding God's plan of the ages and the role Israel plays in that, especially in light of the fact that Israel right now is all over the news, and it's clear to just about anybody that there's something unique about Israel. And when I decided after we finished Nehemiah and after the uh, Hamas uh, attacks of October 7th that I would, rather than move right into my next book of the Bible on Sunday mornings, that I would take some time to talk about Israel, this was the passage that came to my mind. I, I wanted to talk about Romans 9 through 11, which I think more clearly than any other passage, explains what God's plan is for Israel. But we had to let, lay the foundation first. So we started uh, three weeks ago. We talked about Israel and God's plan of the ages. We looked at the unconditional covenant promise uh, to Israel in Genesis chapter 12. Last week, we talked about dispensationalism from the book of Ephesians and how the church and Israel relate. But before we get to uh, Romans 9 through 11, just a few slides. We've shown all these already, but I want to just begin to get you thinking in terms of where Israel fits in the biblical narrative. So here's a chart of the end times that shows basically what's going to happen after the rapture. It's, it's not exhaustive. It's just a high-level summary of some of those things. 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled future eschatological prophecy. So we could talk all day and for weeks indeed about that. But this just gives you a, a general picture. And if you look at this part highlighted in yellow, essentially once you get to the unveiling of the Antichrist and the start of the tribulation, which is also called, by the way, the 70th week of Daniel, that's all about Israel. Israel takes center stage. And what we're going to see in the text this morning is that if you think of the world as a stage, and over time God has different acts in that stage, that Israel, for the vast majority of human history, has been center stage. 
they play a central role in God's plan of the ages. In fact, if you look at this panoramic uh, view, you can see we start uh, creation based on the way we date today at 4004 B.C. God didn't start unveiling through the written word his the details about creation until about 2,600 years later, 1446 B.C., during the wilderness wanderings as Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. During those 40 years, he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit the first five books of the Old Testament. Of course, the first book is Genesis, the book of beginnings, and explains how God created the earth. But that event of creation took place uh, roughly 6,000 years ago. And it's when God spoke the world into existence, time, space, and matter. He created a mature earth, a mature Adam and Eve. Um, we didn't evolve over billions of years from a wet rock, you know, like some people would say. We didn't eventually get smart enough to crawl out of the sea and then crawl out of the caves and then grow arms and all that. That, that uh, is not what the Bible teaches. That is a false satanic teaching that tries to make, tries to minimize God's uh, creative acts by speaking the world into existence. God is the only one that's eternal. There never was a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time when he doesn't exist, but he created time, space, and matter. So you look at this panoramic view of history, obviously we're in the present church age right now, but there's going to be a transition in the future that is Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year piece of the puzzle that transitions us into the kingdom. This present age is called uh, several times in the New Testament the last days or the the, the uh, latter days and that kind of thing, that the last hour sometimes it's called. Those are all references to the church age and the fact that the only age to come is the kingdom age. But if you look at 2091 B.C. along the bottom there, that's when God gave the promise to Abraham that we talked about two weeks ago. So for the vast majority, 4,000 years now, God has been uh, operating under this unconditional promise to Israel. When you get to the time of the Babylonian exile, the time during which Jeremiah was writing, in that passage we quoted a moment ago from Lamentations, God gives uh, Daniel a 490-year prophecy. We talked about that two weeks ago. Um, this is called the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's 70 weeks of years. A week in Hebrew is the word Shabuah. It means seven-year period. So 70 Shabuahs is 490 years. The first 483 years of those have already been fulfilled, but it's a promise to Israel. It's all about Israel. And the final seven years of that plan has not come to fulfillment yet, as we talked about. So Daniel's prophecy demands that there's a future for Israel or else God was wrong. Uh, God, you know, God doesn't operate on sixth-sevenths accuracy. He's seven-sevenths. And he said there's going to be, you know, 70 weeks, I guess 69-seventieths. You know, that's a pretty good percentage. You know, you do something 69% of the time, 69 out of 70% of the time, someone do the math, what's that, 96%, 97% maybe? That's pretty good. You, you bat 97 in baseball, you're going to be, first of all, you know, never happen. But if you could, you'd be a Hall of Famer, Right. And so, but, you know, God doesn't do things halfway. He does exactly what he's going to say uh, to the fullest. And so we can look forward to that final seven years that we just talked about. We can go to the book of Revelation. We see the centrality of Israel in God's plan of the ages. The first five chapters are all about the churches and God's plan to, to, to bring judgment finally on the whole earth and usher in the kingdom and the setting of the stage for that, who's worthy to open the seals. But you get to that chapter 6, and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And guess what? It's all about Israel. That's why you have 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes of Israel. 
That's why you've got the two witnesses in Jerusalem. That's why you've got intense persecution of Israel after the Antichrist breaks the treaty with Israel. That's why, by the way, uh, though it's not explicitly stated here, it's implied in Revelation 6-2, but it's explicitly stated in Daniel 9-27 that the tribulation starts with a covenant with who? Israel. It's a Jewish covenant. And that starts the clock ticking on these final seven years. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah refers to this seven-year period as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being uh, Israel, as we shall see in Romans uh, chapter 9 this morning. Uh, so that's why you have uh, the abomination of desolation that Jesus talks about at the midpoint of this, of this point, uh, of this tribulation period, when the Antichrist goes into what? The Jewish temple, sets himself up on what? The Jewish throne, demands that the whole world worship him and breaks that treaty that he had promised uh, with Israel. So again and again throughout the book of Revelation, you see the references to Israel. We could look at uh, Jesus Christ himself and the biblical data about his human uh, offices that he holds on earth, the purpose of the incarnation, what he, uh, the positions that he holds ever since he uh, came to the earth. We see that he came as a prophet. To who? Israel. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The prophet uh, uh, Moses in the Old Testament predicted that he, there would be a prophet like no other that would come uh, from your brethren. Who's their brethren? Israel. He's speaking to Israel there. And so Jesus came as a prophet. He is currently serving as our high priest uh, at the right hand of God. The new and living way opened up for us by his shed blood. And so now we have access uh, to the Father. But guess what? He's going to come back and fulfill the role of king. And that's what Revelation 19 describes. The name that's written on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And finally, after the thousand-year millennial reign, he's going to serve as the judge. And Paul tells us that he will judge the living and the dead at his kingdom, at the end of that kingdom. So all of this is, you know, Jewish-centered. I mean, think about those terms that you see there. Prophet, priest, king, judge. Sounds familiar, right? Because Israel had prophets, priests, kings, and judge and judges. But Jesus Christ is the ultimate of each one of those. And all along, God's plan was to bring Israel into the land in obedience, in belief, and to rule the entire world. The promise to Abraham, which we're going to see in just a second, just to review, is a global promise. It's through Israel to bless the entire world. And then we looked also at the seed of Abraham and how the Bible says there are four seeds of Abraham. Paul specifically outlines this. Uh, the Jewish ethnic Jews are, in fact, the natural seed. I was listening to someone uh, on a podcast on my 13-hour uh, drive home yesterday. Actually, we had 10 hours yesterday. And uh, this person was just emphatic that Jew, Jew is a religion, not an ethnicity. And I thought, obviously, this guy's never read the Bible. Um, it's both. It's a people of God, and it's also a religion. But natural seed refers to the physical descendants of Abraham, ethnic Jews. Uh, Paul's going to talk about that in the text this morning. Then you got the natural spiritual seed, like we talked about, and that is ethnic Jews who also believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, and, and they've trusted in Him. They've been born again, so they're natural spiritual. They're Christians, but they're ethnic Jews. But then you've got non-ethnic Jews who also get saved. That's you and I. If you're not Jewish, if you've trusted Christ, you're part of the spiritual seed of Abraham. And so we are already beginning to experience the blessings that are promised to be global, uh, one day. Now, let me ask you a question. Is everybody today either a natural spiritual seed or a spiritual seed? In other words, is everybody today born again? No. no. 
then this can't be the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel because again and again the Old Testament promises when that kingdom comes, everybody will know of him from the least to the greatest. And by the end of the kingdom, when Christ once and for all vanquishes his foe, Satan, he's already defeated him once and for all, but he hasn't cast him into the lake of fire that was prepared for him and his angels, the devil. Uh, once that happens, everyone on earth will be a part of the spiritual seed. And then, of course, Paul says the ultimate seed is Jesus Christ. We could look at the differences between Israel and the church. We have not talked about this uh, up to this point in our study of Israel, but the Bible is very clear that there are five purposes of Israel, one of which is to witness to the unity of Yahweh. Remember the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And in the pagan world, in the ancient world, the pagan religions all had multiple gods, the stars and the Roman and Greek gods and so forth, all these ancient Babylonian gods. And, and uh, Israel was to go into the land, testify that there's really only one God, the creator of the universe, Yahweh. And that was the purpose of calling out this nation. Uh, they were also intended to be an example to the nations of what happens when you serve God, when you, when you follow His Word and faithfully serve Him and the incredible blessings that are bestowed upon His children. One of the purposes of Israel was to receive and record the Scripture. Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets, New Testament, Peter, James, John, these were J Jewish people. Obviously, the purpose of Israel was to produce the Savior, Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. And that going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, from the seed of the woman would come the, the Savior who would defeat Satan, the serpent, and uh, bring, make all things new once again. And then, of course, the purpose of Israel is to be center stage in the coming kingdom. Uh, they would crown him with a king's crown the next time and not a crown of thorns. God speaks of the purpose of the church. We talked about this last week from... Ephesians, but it's to call out a people of his name, to showcase his exceeding riches of his grace and mercy. Today, grace is on display in high definition because we have the supreme event of all uh, human history, Calvary. And greater love is no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends, Jesus said. And so uh, that's one of the purposes today is to uh, highlight God's grace. It's not that God's grace is new, but it's being highlighted today. Get this, we're going to talk about this uh, today. This is one of the purposes of the church is to get Israel's attention, to show Israel a, a, just a foretaste of what they're going to have in the kingdom when they come to the Messiah the right way by faith instead of self-righteousness by faith righteousness. Then they too can have unmitigated access to the throne room in heaven. They don't have to go through all of the uh, you know, systematic uh, Jewish religious uh, trappings that uh, were, the, were the dispensation of times past. Another purpose that gets very little attention today, but I've tried to talk about it a lot in my last three books, and that is the purpose of the church is to showcase God's wisdom to Satan. The church is one big giant in your face to Satan in this spiritual cosmic battle. Sadly, the church, as predicted in the Bible, is becoming more and more apostate. We're departing from the Lord. We're, we're falling prey to doctrines of demons and so forth. But the church, when it's doing what the church is supposed to do, is showing Satan that he's a great big loser, that God's grace is sufficient. No matter how hard Satan tries, he can't undo what Jesus did at the cross. We're making a difference in this world. We're making the world a better place. We're a restraining influence, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The church is to, get, to showcase God's wisdom to Satan. And then finally, the church is to prepare a body that will help rule 
in the Messianic kingdom. So let's take a look at three. Uh, I've broken down Romans 9 through 11 in three sections. And to set the stage, let's look at the book of Romans as a whole. So this is all about Israel and the olive tree. The book of Romans, as I've talked about before, starts in the first three chapters uh, with the reality of the fact that we're all hopeless sinners without excuse. The world is lost in sin, sold under sin, depraved, an enemy of God, evil to the core, and nothing within us can redeem us to a holy God. We need Jesus to save us. If you started reading Romans after the third chapter, you got distracted, set it down, and never got back to it, you'd be the most depressed, discouraged person on the planet. Because that's how Romans starts, as I've said before. Chapters 4 and 5, guess what? Jesus died for your sins. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Romans 5.1, we are justified, declared righteous before a holy God. He just described how unrighteous we are. How do we get to be righteous enough to get into heaven? By faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. So that's the good news. Then chapters 6 through 8 which is what I talked about Wednesday night down in Beaumont, Texas at Beaumont Bible Church. We, I talked about how should we then live? Now that we've been born again, we have the new nature, how should we live? Unfortunately, it's not instant sanctification. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't force people to obey any more than He forced you to receive the gift. Forced love is no love at all. You've got to receive the gift. It's freely offered, but it has to be freely received. God, God's not going to cram down your throat this eternal life. You've got to accept it. We had a choice whether to sin, and we chose to rebel, and now we have a choice whether to receive God's remedy on our behalf, the atoning work of Christ. Those who accept it become born again. The Holy Spirit takes up presence, but just as He didn't force us to receive the gift in the first place, He's not forcing you or anybody else to do good works. If He did, if it was totally up to the Holy Spirit, then why aren't we all perfect? Because I have the same Holy Spirit that you have. We all have the same Holy Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's the one forcing us to be good, then i got to say, He's not doing a very good job, right? At least I, I can speak of, of myself in that regard. No, the, the, the growth process of a Christian is a cooperative effort between our yieldedness and the Holy Spirit's convicting work. So Paul talks about that in chapter 6 through 8 of Romans. Uh, remember chapter 7, a famous chapter where he describes his own ongoing struggle with sin. He says, sometimes the things that I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. Sometimes the things that I'm supposed to do, I, I neglect them. You know, how do I deal with this struggle? And he talks a lot about recognizing your identity in Christ. Romans 6, 11, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Don't go back in and enslave yourselves again to sin. You've been set free from it. So why would you want to live like that? Why would you want to live like the old man? You've got a new set of clothes. You've got new freedom. You've got a new identity in Christ. You're a child of the king. Now live like it. Then we get to chapters 9 through 11, where Paul, understandably, especially given as we've shown how much Israel was center stage for so long, the obvious question on everyone's mind, as Paul wrote Romans, is what about Israel? So here it is, it's 56-57 A.D. roughly, Paul's in Corinth on his third missionary journey. The Spirit of God leads him to write this letter to Romans. He'd never been to Rome. In fact, he tells us in chapter 15 of Romans how he just can't wait to get there to preach the gospel where Christ has never been preached before. And he gives this incredible treatise all about God's plan of the ages, including what about Israel. And then he concludes... Uh, the final five chapters there are all about how can we get along, what are some practical things for living and interacting with others, and, and so forth. But it's this chapters 9 through 11 that we want to focus on 
this morning. I want you to imagine, as I said, that the world is a stage. You're sitting watching this stage, and act after act for 2,000 years has included Israel. From early on in the biblical record of the law, the Torah, God had unveiled his plan for Israel. Sure, he starts with creation and fall in Genesis 1 through 3. Then he, he goes on and talks about Cain and Abel. He talks about uh, the unholy incursion of the fallen angels who come down and try to destroy the gene pool. He talks about the flood as a response to that. He reveals information about Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations. And then guess what? You get to chapter 12. And from that point on, the Bible is all about the centrality of Israel. So you're watching this play. Acts come and go. Curtain rises and falls. Every time the curtain rises, there's Israel center stage. All of a sudden in the first century, after Israel crucified their Messiah, he rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he begins writing this letter. And Paul is saying, look, I know you're sitting here in this theater and you just watched the curtain rise and there's no Israel on the stage. And I get that that's probably a little puzzling to you. And you might be wondering, what about Israel? And so he takes three chapters as we're going to do this morning, to explain uh, that uh, God has a future for national Israel, that, that you can guarantee it. And he uses an olive tree as an analogy. So the first thing he explains is the election of Israel. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, because, uh, it, although I would love to, uh, and, and this is where most uh, people, especially Reformed theologians and Covenant theologians, completely get off base in Romans 9. They make it all about individual election. Well, to be sure, there is individual election. I spent several hours talking about that this week in my study of soteriology down in Texas. But that's beside the sub, that's another subject for another day. What God is saying here is, look, I'm God, you're not, I chose Israel. Deal with it. That's basically what he's saying. He could have chosen anybody. He chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. But I'm God, I get to do that. And they're my chosen nation. They're the apple of my eye. I've got a purpose for them, as I just showed you, a quick survey of some of the biblical data on why, why Israel. But I've, I've, I've chosen them. And it goes back to that covenant, that unconditional covenant in Genesis 12, where God said, I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has elected Israel. So just a couple of highlights from chapter 9. Paul begins by affirming his deep love for his kinsmen and his fellow Jews and how he's anguishing over the fact that they rejected the gospel. The vast majority of the Jews did. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I wish that everybody, essentially is what he's saying, had come to faith. I wish that it wasn't just a remnant like me and a few other Jews that got saved, but I wish everybody had. In fact, he said, I'd be willing to be cursed uh, for my brethren, if that's what it uh, took. The Jews often gloried in the fact that as Israelites, they were God's chosen people. But because of unbelief, they were now set aside, as we're going to see when we come to chapter 11, temporarily, and the church takes center stage. And Paul anguishes over that. And the question then is, has God abandoned the Jewish people entirely? And Paul says, absolutely not. Here he describes some of the spiritual privileges which belong to the people of Israel. To them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, uh, 
I mean, the whole law came through Israel, the service of God and the promises. And as if that weren't enough, he, he goes on to add the most important piece of the puzzle, which is that it's through Israel that Christ came. Um, I mean, when you think about all of human history and you stop to consider how much of it is in some way connected to Israel, it's utterly absurd to think that God is somehow finished with Israel. The failure of the Jews to respond to the gospel of Christ did not mean that God's word had failed, that he was wrong, that he's changed his mind. That's what Paul says in verse 6. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's just that they're not all Israel who are of Israel. Not every Jew believed the gospel. And that's been true since Israel began. Not every ethnic descendant of Abraham is automatically going to heaven just because they're a Jew. Every Jew from Adam forward had to be declared righteous by faith. That's why Genesis 15, 6 says, Father Abraham himself believed God, faith, and was declared righteous, justified. Every human being from Adam forward gets saved the same way by faith. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. It's not a contract. You don't sit down and bargain with God. You don't promise to be good, pledge to be good, forsake all your sins, promise to stop sinning. None of that. It's not giving something to God. You don't give Him your life, give Him your heart, give Him your all. That's what believers should do. I hope you woke up today and said to the Lord, your Savior, Lord, how can I serve you today? What can I give you today? I want to give you my all today. But nobody gets into heaven because they sit down and make a contract with God where they say, I'm going to give you X, Y, and Z. And God says, it's a deal. Let's shake on it. That's not the way God works. We cannot earn our way into heaven. The giving and receiving of salvation is one directional. God's the giver. We're the receiver. And those who think they can get to heaven by giving something in this old sin-stricken life to the almighty God, perfect, holy, righteous God are just sorely mistaken. You need to let go, open your arms, and say, Jesus paid it all. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And so Paul is simply saying here that God has, he's going to explain why in greater detail, but God has temporarily set aside Israel because the vast majority of Israel, as they have done many other times, uh, rejected Christ and did not believe the gospel. And so, uh, you know, that's what led ultimately to all of their captivities and their bondage and their discipline. But this was kind of the, the culmination of it. The next time they won't do it. This will be the final time. And he goes on to say, um, you notice the purpose of God according to election might, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand. What election? The choosing of Israel. If you think God's done with Israel, then the purpose of God according to the election will not stand. And God's a liar. But if, if God's not a liar, and He's not, and His promises are true, and they are, then the purpose of God according to the election will stand. Uh, someday, you know, God who chose Israel, uh, and again, He's not talking about individual election here, He's talking about national election. He, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. That's a hyperbole, a metaphor, talking about His choosing. Even Isaiah the prophet, as Paul quotes here at the end of chapter 9, uh, quoting from Isaiah 10 and chapter 1, 10, 22, and 23, 1, 9, uh, he shows that God's sovereign choice always included a remnant, though it might be a minority at times. Uh, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Remember, saved means delivered into the kingdom. He's not talking about individual salvation from the penalty of sin here. He's talking about national deliverance into the kingdom. Uh, the, the word save is a verb in Greek that's used 108 times in the New Testament, and over 58% of the time it means national deliverance or physical deliverance from temporal judgment, sickness, uh, disease, 
Only 42% of the time does it have anything to do with eternal salvation. He's using it here in the sense of national deliverance into the kingdom. That becomes clear when we get to chapter 11 uh, and chapter 10 for that matter. But he's going to finish the work as Isaiah the prophet uh, predicted. So we see the election of Israel, but then we see the rejection by Israel. Uh, this is uh, what happened in the first century. At the end of chapter 9, Paul says, What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to that righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, on the other hand, who zealously pursued the law of righteousness, doesn't get it. In other words, if I could paraphrase this, Paul is, is using a technique that he uses often, and not just Paul, other New Testament writers use the same technique. It's called interlocution. It's where you take on the voice of an objector. Um, and Basically, the objector here is saying, Paul, do you mean to tell me that these dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles, simply because they believed in God, believed the gospel, they get to have the righteousness of God imputed to them? But these Jews who for centuries have zealously dotted their I's and crossed their T's, they don't get the righteousness of God? Paul says, uh, yep, that about sums it up. You, 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 you were paying attention. You listened. You understood. That's exactly what I'm saying. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith but as it were by the works of the law. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. They, they crucified the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but they didn't receive Him as their King. And so Paul goes on to say, remember there were no chapter divisions in the original letter. The verse and chapter numbers didn't come along until 1,500 years later in the 16th century. And uh, he says, my, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they will be delivered. I want Israel to get the, the kingdom. I want that kingdom. Um, you know, during their earthly life, of course, Paul didn't get saved till after the resurrection, but the disciples were obsessed with the kingdom. I mean, the minute they heard Jesus and John the Baptist both say, the kingdom is at hand, meaning the king is here, they were like, where can I sit? What do I get? When is it happening? Who's going to sit where? We want to be on 12 thrones. Peter asked on more than one occasion, What's gonna, what am I going to get when I get there? When, when the Lord provided a, a foreshadowing at the transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration where he gave him a glimpse of what the kingdom was going to be like, Peter's like, man, this is great. Let's camp out here forever. Let's build some houses and stay here. They were obsessed with the kingdom. And Paul too. They, they wanted the kingdom. You can sense the, just the heartfelt cry in his, in his voice. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to true knowledge. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, and they sought to establish their own righteousness by, by, by works. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to what? Everyone who believes. only way you're going to be righteous enough to get into heaven is by believing the gospel. And the only way the Jewish people will be able to cry out to the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is if they first individually believe the gospel. And that's what Paul goes on to say at the end of, uh, or sort of the middle of chapter 10 here. He quotes Joel, the Old Testament prophet, and he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've seen gospel tracts and even well-intentioned preachers use Romans 10, 13 as an eternal salvation passage. Not at all what it's talking about. Anytime you see an Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament, it's a pretty good idea to go back and see what the Old Testament's talking about. And Joel that he quotes here, that's why it's in quotations, is from Joel 2, a second coming passage. Listen to what Joel predicts for the nation of Israel someday. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
And it shall come to pass that whoever in Israel, he's talking about the nation of Israel, calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. In other words, hang on, a better day is coming. Someday my word will come true. Someday, as, as predicted all the way back in Genesis 3.15 and reiterated in Genesis 12 and throughout Israel's history, all Israel will be delivered into the kingdom. So we know this is the second coming contextually from Joel, but Jesus himself, when answering the question, when are you coming back to set up the kingdom, cites Joel. Listen to the parallels here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is the words of Jesus. So when is he talking about coming back? After the tribulation, the end of the seven years, battle of Armageddon. What's going to happen? The sun's going to be dark and the moon will not give his light. Sound familiar? Joel just predicted that. Not just, he predicted it 600 years earlier. But uh, the sun will not give its light, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It will be a time of incredible cosmic signs in the heavens. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear, Jesus said. Then the whole earth will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What's the first thing he's going to do when he comes back? Same thing Joel said he's going to do. The people of Israel will call on the name of the Lord and then they will be gathered together uh, from the four winds of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. His elect here is Israel. He's talking about Israel, God's chosen nation. Same thing Paul's talking about. The nation of Israel, God chose Israel. So when Christ comes back, he's going to regather Israel into the land. But the problem is, Jesus had just previously said, you're not going to get to be gathered into the land until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You, won't, you are not going to see me again. The next time you see me, in other words, will be when you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that, that's exactly what Joel the prophet said. In Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance when the remnant is delivered back into the kingdom. So let's talk about that deliverance. That's the last point Paul makes in the whole point of Romans 9 through 11 is that someday Israel will be delivered into the kingdom. You know, Paul goes on to say they can't call on him in whom they have not believed. That's the whole point of Romans 10. With the heart man believes individually and is declared righteous, but with the mouth confession is made, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they, the nation will be delivered into the kingdom. Paul's not suggesting two ways to get to heaven. He's talking about two different things. He's talking about individual faith and national deliverance into the kingdom. And he says, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Individual Jews, like all human beings, must first believe the gospel. And then and only then, as believers, will they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. It ends with that beautiful picture of the second coming of Christ. So Paul says, well, has God cast away his people? Absolutely not. By no means. God has not cast away these people whom he foreknew. But he, what he says is they have stumbled, but they have not utterly fallen. And listen to this. This is key. Through their fall, through Israel's fall in the first century, in order to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. As I said earlier, uh, the, the, the intimacy of our relationship with the Creator through His eternal Son and our Savior is something that Israel is going to pay attention to because that's what they were striving for all along. <laughs> they wanted the Messiah to finally come. And, and, and Paul goes on to say, if their fall is riches for the world, I mean, 
What does he mean by that? Well, the same supreme event of all of history involved two aspects. On the one hand, for God's prophetic plan in the nation of Israel, it was a rejection. They crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. But of course, at the same time, it was also the substitutionary atonement, God paying the penalty for the sins of all men through his son. God, Jesus Christ, had laid down his life willingly for the sins of the world. So that's what he's saying. Through Israel's fall, riches came to the world. And if that's the truth, if their failure brings riches to the Gentiles, imagine their fullness, which has been the plan all along. Twice in Romans 11, Paul uses the word fullness. Once talking about the fullness of Israel here, and once talking about the fullness of the church, the Gentiles. And when both have reached their fullness, it's going to be a time of unprecedented peace, righteousness, and justice on this incredible earth when the Prince of Peace takes the throne. So you think that their fall resulted in a good thing, you know, theologically speaking. Just imagine their fullness. He goes on, I speak to you as Gentiles inasmuch as I'm apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling to the world, right, what will their acceptance be? Even better. And then he uses a couple of analogies. He talks about the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. He's just trying to hammer home the point that their stumbling is only temporary, not permanent. There's a promise there. There's an unconditional covenant there. There's a future there. And the nation will be restored someday to their rightful place as the center of the universe. The first illustration is taken from God's instructions in Numbers 15, where a cake uh, from the first fruits, the, the ground meal, the first part of the meal, was uh, used as an offering. And he's saying this was to be repeated every year at the harvest. The, the, the law said that. So the cake uh, made from the first ground meal of the wheat harvest was sanctified, and it made everything that emanated from it. In other words, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits, what he calls the first fruit, is holy, then the whole batch is holy, Right? And similarly, if the root of a tree is holy, so are the branches. You know, you might have some branches fall off, that's what he's going to say, but it doesn't change the root. And so then he goes on to this famous olive tree analogy that is so clear when you understand the flow of thought that Paul is describing here. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. The olive tree represents blessing. It's the place of God's blessing. It's the center stage on the stage. And so their curtain rose. Israel's gone. Everybody's going, what's next? And all of a sudden the church takes shape and is for the present age the center stage. The spotlight is on the church. We're here preaching the gospel, making disciples, trying to make a difference in this world, shining as stars in this perverse generation, Paul says. And so he's looking straight at the Gentiles and saying, you're, you're, you're not Israel, but you've been grafted into this place of God's blessing. It's not that Israel is the olive tree. We're going to see that in the next verse. They own the olive tree. You can't be the olive tree and own the olive tree at the same time, right? Clearly, the olive tree is not Israel. It's just something that is rightfully theirs. They, have the, they are the rightful heirs to the place of blessing. They have been temporarily cut off. It doesn't change the root. The future is still uh, true. But at some point, 
they're going to be grafted back in. Notice he also says, look, you church-age believers, don't get so haughty, but remember that you don't support the root, but the root supports you. I wish everybody right now who's a replacement theologian or who's not supporting Israel as they're coming under enormous attack by the Islamic terrorists would read that verse 18 there. See, it's not about you guys. It's about Israel. And salvation is of the Jews. The root uh, of this place of blessing is supporting us. We have a job to do, a purpose, five purposes that I talked about. But at some point, the Lord's going to call us home. That'll be the end of the rapture, the end of the church age at the rapture. And guess who's center stage again when the curtain rises? Israel. Because it's their tree. He goes on to say, you know, you might argue that branches were broken off just so we might be grafted in. That's what replacement theology argues. The tree is Israel. God broke off Israel, and now the church is the new Israel. Paul said, well, yeah, branches were broken off, but God didn't break them off. They were broken off by unbelief. We are, we are accountable for our choices. And the Gentiles are rightly in that position of blessing right now because they have faith. The Jews didn't. They didn't believe. So he, he goes on to talking to the Gentiles. Remember, it's a, a letter to the Romans, but he's just addressing the issue of what about Israel. And he says, don't be haughty, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches because of their unbelief, he might not spare you either. You know, you need to believe the gospel. Paul started out the whole letter way back in chapter 1 by saying, the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. And you Gentiles in the church age who think you're all that because you've replaced Israel, I got news for you. You better believe the pure and simple gospel message and be saved because if you don't, I'm going to lop you off too. <laughs> and Israel is going to get back into uh, the right place. And this is what he says in the next verses. If they also, if they don't, if they don't continue in unbelief, that's the key. Same thing he said in chapter 10. They got to believe before they can be delivered into the kingdom. So if they don't continue in unbelief, and they won't, there will be at least one-third of the Jews during the future tribulation who do not take the mark of the beast. They believe in Jesus Christ. Many of them are beheaded, but many of them will endure to the end in their physical bodies, and they will be the ones that get into the kingdom. If they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in again. God is able to graft them in again. For if you are cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and grafted contrary to your nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more do you think the natural branches can be grafted back into their own olive tree? Again, it's their olive tree. It's not that they are the olive tree. The olive tree is the place of God's uh, blessing. So, uh, you know, someday the church, just like it was for Israel in the first century, there was a remnant who cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the Lord. Within a few days, the nation as a whole cried, crucify him, crucify him. And most of the mob just jumped on the bandwagon. But there was a remnant. There were Jews that got saved. The disciples, obviously, many others. Jesus talks about them in John chapter 6 and other places. And so, and, and even today in the present church age, from the first century on, there are Jews who got saved. They're called Messianic Jews, uh, uh, believers, born again. But as the church age goes on in fulfillment of prophecy, we're going to see a departure from the faith even among Christians in the church age. They're going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, so that by the end of the church age, when the rapture happens, there's a pretty small remnant. Most of the church is apostate, but most of the churches don't 
preach a clear gospel. Most people don't understand salvation by grace through faith alone. They're trying to work for it, or they're just completely apostate and believe in universalism or no hell or you know, multiple pathways to heaven. Those, in that sense, Paul is saying the church is going to be lopped off because they didn't continue in unbelief. I mean, they continue in belief. And the Israel, who then turns around and believes, that remnant is going to be grafted back into their own olive tree. And then this beautiful passage that ties it all together at the end of this cha chapter, in the end of the three chapters, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Fullness of Israel has not come in yet. 1948 was not the fullness that Paul was talking about earlier in chapter 11. They're there in unbelief. Someday, after the tribulation, the fullness of Israel will come in and they'll get back grafted into that place of God's global blessing. And this is the mystery that Paul was explaining here in this section. A mystery is something previously undisclosed, now being revealed. And he's explaining the relationship between the church and Israel. Right now, Israel's blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, but that doesn't mean he's through with Israel because then all Israel, when Christ comes back, will be saved, again, delivered. And we know that because he quotes from Jeremiah here, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Who's that? Jesus Christ. So individual belief must precede corporate confession or calling on the name of the Lord, but someday that will happen. When Christ comes back, he regathers his elect Israel back into the land. So to close out, this is how I would diagram it. I'm not the best uh, artist. My uh, daughters are much better at this than I am, but uh, this is the way I would graph it out. This is the olive tree, right? It's the place of God's favor. Think of it as center stage on planet Earth, right? And God's Word tells us how He's using two groups, Israel and the church, to accomplish His purposes. I mentioned the five purposes that we have today for the church. Um, but God has a plan for both. And so uh, Israel was center stage in the uh, olive tree, the place of God's blessing. Uh, God used them uh, in all their warts and flaws so far in many ways, the great rich history of Israel. Uh, theologians call it Israelology, right? Or a historiography of Israel, right? But because of unbelief, guess what? God says, I'm going to temporarily set you aside. And that's exactly what he did. They were cut off. These branches from the olive tree were cut off. Not all of them. Obviously, there's a remnant, as we know, uh, that was saved, that believed the gospel. So I left two branches on there just to represent the remnant. Paul is part of that, right? And meanwhile, the church in the present age has moved into the place of God's favor on the olive tree. And the church has been grafted in. And uh, we are enjoying the blessings. But someday, guess what? The church is going to be raptured. God's plan for the church will be complete, at least for the church age. And Israel will be grafted back in. And then Paul closes it out by saying, look, let me summarize my dealings with Israel and with the church. Concerning the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. In other words, for, for God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, he had to deal with Israel corporately and nationally as if they were enemies, so to speak, from a human perspective. But notice, notice the next statement. But concerning the election, they are beloved. <laughs> Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, metaphorically, he said. 
concerning God's choosing, they are beloved, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And when people today, well-intentioned though they may be, suggest that God has forsaken His promises to Israel, He's changed His mind, they forget the whole point that Paul has just been at great length making, that God's calling of Israel is irrevocable. There is a future for Israel. And even though his heart was going out to Israel in his day because they had rejected the gospel, uh, he knows that that God's going to bring them through and, and fulfill his promises. And so he concludes with this beautiful section of praise and doxology. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, I don't understand it all. I'm just writing what the Holy Spirit is leading me to write. But I know God has a purpose for the church. He has a purpose for Israel. He wants everybody on earth to believe the gospel and be saved. And someday the deliverer is going to come out of Zion. And when he does, what a day that'll be. For, to, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Israel in the olive tree. What's the takeaway? Well, the summary, first of all, is we saw Paul talk about God chose Israel, Israel rejected God, and yet they're still going to be delivered when they finally accept the gospel. So the takeaway is pretty simple. Take God at his word, not only about Israel, but about everything else. As we await the kingdom age, as we await the rapture, we can look to the promises of God made to Israel and how again and again he's done exactly what he's going to say he's going to do. And we can count on the fact that our God is a covenant-keeping God. And that should bring us great comfort and joy and love and gratitude. Amen? So be thankful for that this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Thankful that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the encouragement that we find in it. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we know there's a lot going on in this crazy mixed up world, but help us to, sh to sift through the fog and look squarely at your word and know that you are a faithful covenant-keeping God. And Lord, I pray, as we've already said, if there's one here that doesn't know you, that in simple faith, they would take that, that first step, trusting in your Son and our Savior as the only one who can forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life. And then, uh, like all of us who are already saved, walk by faith and continue to look up and be watchful. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.